We are in a study of the book of Nehemiah. Hope you've been enjoying it. So if you've got your Bibles, we're kind of looking at chapters 4 to 6. Uh, we'll be jumping back and forth. And uh, for those of you that are at home and online, we're delighted to have you. Trust that you'll also get your Bibles out as we talk about this idea of adversity today. So just in case you haven't been with us, let me kind of tell you where we've been. We started in Nehemiah chapter 1 with the idea of vision, that God sometimes comes and uniquely puts a vision, a burden upon your heart. Uh, Maybe it's for something in your life, maybe it's for a ministry, but something that he lays upon your heart. Then then Jamie came the following week and talked about how do you know if that burden is from God, right? It's what he's wanting you to do, uh, or if it's just the pizza you had last night that didn't sit too well, right? You got heartburn. Remember uh, what we saw with Nehemiah, that he fasted, he prayed, he waited on God. He started looking for doors that were open. The following week, we took a little deeper dive into this idea of waiting on God. And what does it mean to don't waste the wait? Because God is way more concerned about what you're becoming. That you are becoming more and more like Jesus than he is about what you're doing for him. So the weight is often part of his process. Then we talked about strategy, right? Getting a plan, thinking through, because none of us knows what tomorrow holds, but what would it look like if this set of circumstances or this set of circumstances? And, and we develop those plans and those ideas so as God begins to open doors, we know how to step through. But we hold those plans loosely because, again, none of us knows about tomorrow. And then as God begins to unfold it and open the doors, we begin to communicate it. As God then often brings people together with this, with this idea of, of having a, a matching vision. So, I mean, very, very, very seldom does God give somebody a vision and it's a solo piece. Right? It's where God now begins to bring and is working in many people's hearts. And that's what led us to then talk about commitment last week. Because here's the thing. As people come alongside, you need commitment. Because if there's no commitment, there is no work. And if there's no work, you're making no progress. So you need, you need commitment. You need people to say, hey, I'm into this. And that's where you get work. And when you get deep commitment, that's when you get sacrifice. And honestly... No significant vision is ever accomplished without sacrifice. Now, here's the issue. Heard it put like this once. Just like planting potatoes in your garden will bring bugs, you go on a vision, a mission piece, you're going to face adversity, right? It's going to happen. Adversity is going to take place. It is just the nature of life. Movement brings resistance. Isn't that even like the whole idea of exercise, right? It, it makes you work. And when you, if you're just stationary, no resistance. But you get moving. And I was thinking back to a few years ago. I typically... Uh, to do exercise would run, right? But as you become more mature, uh, your knees, your back, they begin to be affected differently when you're running. And I was sharing the, the difficulties of why I wasn't moving as much to my wife. She suggested, hey, 
ride your bike, right? Not as hard on the joints, not as hard on the back. Ride your bike. I thought, great, man, this is, this is going to be awesome. So I jump on my bike, and, and I take off, and I go, man, I can't wait till I can turn around and head back because I'm riding into the wind. And then I turned around and went back, and guess what? I was riding into the wind. Does that happen to anybody else? Why? Because movement brings resistance. That's why it takes no energy for a rocket to sit on the launch pad. But it takes a boatload of energy to get it through the atmosphere. Movement brings resistance. It's the way of the world. It's just the way it works. But you and I have got another issue, right? And we understand this. We are on a mission from God, right? We're doing what God called us to do. And spiritually, there's an enemy, and he's pushing back, right? Satan has opposed God. He's opposed God's people. He's opposed God's plan since the beginning of time. I mean, if the Bible doesn't, you know, if it shows us one thing, if you read through the Old Testament, it shows you there's an enemy. Because God said from the seed of the woman's going to come a Messiah. And he picks Abraham. And now most of the Old Testament is Satan trying to destroy God's people. Trying to destroy so the Messiah couldn't come. Then you even get to the story of Christmas that most of us are familiar with. You know, Jesus is born. All of a sudden Herod decides to go and kill every baby two years of age and younger in Bethlehem. Why? There's an enemy. There's an enemy. You're going to face adversity. And adversity can take all kinds of forms. It can, you know, it can become health issues. It can become, you know, legislative red tape. There's all types of adversity. In the book of Nehemiah, though, there are three specific adversities that he ran into that I wanted to look at. The first one you see there in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. It says, now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. Now, by the way, there's two people here that uh, we've read before, but I haven't really talked about it. Sam Bowett and Tobiah. Now, I don't know if their moms didn't like them when they were born. I don't know how they got the names. But here's who they are. Sam Bowett was the governor of Samaria. Now, if you're thinking the land of Israel. So under the Persians, the land of Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus, you know, would go through Samaria. It was the upper part of Israel. He is the governor over there. Obviously, he does not want Jerusalem to become a power again. He does not want that because that would be the, where the seat of power. So he's against this. The other guy's Tobiah. He's an Ammonite. A- Ammon comes from east of the Jordan River. So he was probably the governor under the king of Persia of the Transjordan plain there. You know, Jericho across over into Ammon and Edom and Moab and all of those areas. And they're against. And so the first thing they do is they bring ridicule and shame. So look what happens here, verse 2. He spoke in the presence of his brothers, and the wealthy men of Samaria said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can, can they offer sacrifice? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near them, and he said, Even what they're building... If a fox, you know, a little, little tiny fox were to jump on it, it would break the stone wall down. And so ridicule 
What do you think you're doing? You think you have the ability to do this? That's what the enemy starts whispering in our ear. You don't have the strength. You don't have the power. You don't have the gifting. Why? Well, you'll never do anything that's significant. What about the shame of, you know, the, these Jews who, by the way, have, you know, walked away from God. That's why it's all destroyed. Think about your past. You think God would use you? And he whispers in our ear these issues of ridicule and shame. And pretty soon we listen to him. We'll start thinking, yeah, yeah, you know, I can't really do that. Yeah, it's a nice thought. Somebody else. Ridicule and shame. The second adversity that comes is fear. So the ridicule and shame comes. By the way, it gets to them. They just kept their head down. They kept working. You get on down to verse 7. Now it becomes a matter of fear. Verse 7. Now when Samballot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Uh, look at verse 11. Our enemies said they will not know or see us until we come among them. And then we're going to kill them and put a stop to the work. And when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times. Ten times they came and said. They will come up against you from every place where you may turn. There's no escaping. Look at verse 14. He says, then I saw their fear. In fact, this is the one time. Work comes to a halt. We're going to be attacked. Now again, just to understand the text, so you got Samballot. He's north, right? That, that's Samaria. You got uh, Tobiah. He's to the east. You got the Arabs who would be coming from the south. The Ashites, that's kind of think Philistine, Gaza. They're coming from the west. They are completely surrounded. And they're going to come and they're going to attack us. Fear. Fear is one of the biggest adversities that the enemy brings. Why? Because fear paralyzes. Right? 2020. We live in a culture of fear, don't we? Fear of, uh, fear of the pandemic. By the way, can I just, for those, you know, those of us that know Jesus, can I just give you a little understanding, I think? People really aren't scared of the pandemic. What people are scared of is they're scared of death. Cool thing about those of us who know Jesus is we don't fear death, do we, right? Because to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. The fear of COVID is actually a great way to introduce the gospel. Because through Jesus, the fear of death has been removed. And, but we're We're fearful. We're, we're fearful of the disease, and, and uh, we're fearful of what's happening in our country, and we're fearful of, of, of how the election is going to play out. We're fearful, of, and fear and fear paralyzes. Now, I want to be really clear. There's a difference between concern and fear, and, and you'll see it here in this passage. Um, you know, this idea that, okay, hey, we're not afraid of death doesn't mean that we go try to jump the Grand Canyon in our 
our minivan, right? You know, it's not, you're not stupid. It's God's given us a mind, right? And, and so you take precautions. You, you, you understand the concerns. So, so notice what happens here. Verse 13. So then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space between the wall and exposed places. And I, st- I stationed the people and families with swords and spears and bows. And then you go over in verse 16. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears and shield, the bows, the breastplates, the captain. Uh, the, and those were rebuilding uh, verse where are we at here? Verse 19 uh, talks about how, or actually verse 18 talks about how I had the trumpeter with me. And they kept the sword on their side. So, you know, there was concern. Yeah, we might be attacked and we need to be ready for that. But they didn't let it paralyze them. And so with, with, with the COVID, yeah, we've got, a, we've got a virus out there. And it's nasty. It's very contagious. You know, for 99, what, 0.6% of the people, you're, you're going to get through it. For, for the 0.4, man, I, I think of our own Wade, who, you know, young man, 11 days in the hospital. So we want to be wise. There's nothing wrong with concern. I mean, I'm concerned for our country. I'm praying for our country, right? There's nothing wrong with concern, but we can't let it paralyze us with fear. Because as believers, what we know is that God holds us in the palm of his hand, right? We can trust him. And if I get COVID tomorrow, most likely he's going to walk me through it. And if he doesn't, he decides to walk me home, then great. I don't have to worry about the country anymore, right? So, I mean, we'll be home. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of, the point is, is that we don't, we don't, fear paralyzes. And it stops the vision. Can't live in fear. Couldn't help but think of Timothy who struggled with fear, right? And Paul writes those words in that last book to him. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Folk, if we're living with fear, that is not of God. It's not of God. Concern, yeah. Be wise, yes. But don't live with fear. But God's given us a spirit of power, of love, and of sound mind. The third piece is over in chapter 6. And now the adversity comes with lies. Verse 1. Now when it was reported to Sambalat, Tobiah, to Gresham, and the Arabs, uh, the Arabs, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Then Sambalat and Gresham sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together on the plain of Onan. <laughs> but, but they planned to harm me. Oh, come on. Okay, so now you got to rebuild. So now we're kind of governors together. Uh, you know, let's come together. But it was a lie, right? It was a lie. He knew it was a lie. And so the people will lie to you. They'll, they'll try to, you know, get in on it. And yet they've got wrong motives. And, and it can derail you. Or th- they end up lying about you. Look at... Uh, Verse, uh, verse 5, then Sembalat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time. So this is ongoing with an open letter. That means he's reading it to everyone. And it says, in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Gashum says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. 
Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king according to the reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. It's a lie. In fact, notice what he says in verse 8. So then I sent, Nehemiah sent a message to him, says, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. I love that. He's lying. And so people will tell lies to you. They'll tell lies about you. And and again, what it is meant to do is to discourage, to deflate. I, I was thinking this week as I was processing the idea of lies of, um, I don't know how many of you were around when we actually bought this building back in 2006. And sadly, one of the things that happened in the midst of all of it were a boatload of lies were told. There was a, a, a church and a school that was here. And of course, one of the big concerns was trying to get the school through. And, um, and uh, you know, they had actually came and approached us and uh, and so we were working on it, and then with the school, so we said, hey, listen, we want the school year to be able to finish all the way through May, and we'll, we'll, we'll let you, you know, have the school here, we'll charge no rent. We might have to charge some for utilities, but we'll do it for rent. And, and sadly, uh, leadership didn't communicate that. In fact, told lies. We're going to kick them out on the street and all that, and uh, and man, it, it, at some point it was, it was deflating. I mean, it was like, man, we're trying to do our best. We're trying to walk with this as Christians, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, in fact, for some of you that maybe were there, we had a, we had a meeting. We had come and looked at the building. We had a church meeting and, and some of the, the folks, and I felt bad for them because they had been lied to. But they came to our meeting to tell us what bad people we were. And uh, funny thing is, I, I think everybody was going to be in favor moving ahead. After they talked, everybody was really in favor doing what we were going to do. So they actually, but it was just, it was deception. And then that deception actually went, kept going on because we ended up uh, having them in for about a year and a half. And, and there were just times I just thought, man, God, is it even worth it? it it's discouraging when your motives are assailed and all of that adversity is going to come. It's going to happen. And the thing is, in the midst of the adversity, what you got to understand is, you know, God might be tweaking the vision a little bit, but most likely what he's dealing with is the plan, right? The plan is getting changed. So for, for uh, Nehemiah, right, we got to change the plan. We've all been going full force into the wall. Now we've got we to scale back. It's going to take us a little longer. But we do need some men to be there holding the swords and the spears in case we're going to be attacked. The plan was changed. But here's the thing. Vision is from God. That doesn't change, does it? It might get tweaked. It might get aligned with so that it fits with others. But, but the vision is the vision. The plan is ours, right? We've been thinking on it. We've been cooking on it. I remember when and we were, you know, coming from Glendale and we had sold. And, of course, I was thinking land. I want to go out and buy land, build on land. God, no, no, no. We ran into all of this adversity and God had a better plan. The plan was, no, buy another building. You can just go right in and start doing ministry again. Right? Plans change. But visions don't. So the thing is, when adversity comes, 
Let God tweak the vision, sure. Let God change the plans, but don't let the adversity kill the vision. That's what the enemy wants. If God gave you the vision, you got to hang with it. So how do you then deal with adversity? Well, it's pretty clear in the passage. Number one is you pray. Look at, uh, again, go back to chapter 4. So Tobiah, you know, they just said, hey, if a fox were to jump on it, verse 4. What did Nehemiah do? He prayed. Hear, O God, how we are despised. Return the reproach on their head. Give them up for the plunder in the, in the land of captivity. You know, he, he prays. You see it later in chapter 6 when this happens. He prays. God, remember what we're doing. Pray. Lean into the Lord. Focus on him. Let him change your plan. Let him direct your steps. Pray. Adversity is going to come. I was uh, been walking with a friend of mine through uh, just a real difficult time of adversity in, in their life and ministry. And, um, you know, a vision was hatched a number of years ago and Gone and, and now they, they just seemingly run into the mountain, man. And it's it, the last four to five months, like every door that is open, uh, it's got a brick wall behind it. And I was sitting with them this week, and I, I just said, friend, man, I, I, feel, I feel this with you. Because I've been there. Uh, that's why these stories are so much funner to tell at the end than they are to live, right? It's hard. But what can we do? We can pray. We can keep looking for doors, right? So pray. Second thing is, is, is stand in truth. I mean, I mean, Nehemiah, I love this. He said, you're making this up. In fact, go back to, go back to chapter 6 there. And uh, they come, let us meet together. I love verse 3. He says, so I sent messengers to them. You know, they want to meet with me, but they're going to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them and says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I love it. I don't got time for you. You're lying. I don't have time. I'm going to stand in the truth. This is what God has called me to do. Lean into the truth. You know what the truth is. Nehemiah knew he wasn't going to try to be the king. He knew he wasn't setting this up as a revolt. Don't listen to the lies. Stand in the truth of what God has has called you to do. But here's the the real focal point that I want to kind of leave you with this morning. It's this. If it's God's vision, don't quit. Let me maybe express it a little differently. If it's God's vision, why on God's green earth would you quit, right? If he gives you a vision, isn't that what we give our life for? So if God put a vision for, for a marriage that is going to be just awesome, but right now your spouse isn't wanting to go on, why would you quit? Or, or if he's giving you a vision for how you're going to disciple your kids, but you've got some kids that are walking away from the Lord, why would you quit? Or God put someone in your house, heart that you want to see come to faith in Christ, and you're praying and praying, but they seem to be getting harder, why would you quit? You want to stand before Jesus one day and, hey, I put that on your heart. I know, but it was just a little too hard. Man, don't quit. Don't give up. That's, and I'll tell you, this is one of the reasons why, going back to what Jamie did in that second sermon, is this is why it is so important 
That when you feel a vision, you've got to take time to pray. You've got to take time to sit before the Lord to wait to make sure it's God's vision. Now, I wish I'd had the wisdom to do that back when we started at Desert Springs. I didn't. I was young and dumb. But the good thing was I didn't want to come. I really wanted God to close his door. So I was trying to actually kind of kick them closed myself. And we agonized through those months of praying and just trying, in a sense, to get God to say, no, it's not what I want you to do. And he kept coming back. And I've, as I share with you, not an audible voice. It's just how the Holy Spirit works. We knew this is what God called us to do. So two years in, and we're about ready to close it down because we had no you know, we're $10,000 in debt. And then God shows up at the last minute with $34 in the bank. You just keep going on. In 2000, when uh, we hit another rough patch, and I shared about that a couple weeks ago. You know, you, you just keep going. You just keep pushing. We sold the church. We got no place to go. You just, you just keep pushing. You just go. Why? Because it's not my vision. It's God's vision. Right? This is what he called us to do. And, and so don't quit. Don't quit. Because here's the thing. Remember, God's way more concerned about what you're becoming than what you're doing. So what you've got to remember is that through the adversity, and sure, even the enemy's bringing it, right? But God is so great, he uses that adversity to change us. He uses that adversity to, to, to refine us, to prepare us. And so God is at work in the midst of all of this. Couldn't help but think of that passage in 1 Thessalonians. So Paul was just in Thessalonica for three weeks. Remember, he'd just come from Philippi where he had been beaten persecution was following. He's only there three weeks because the persecution shows up. He warned them when he was there, you're going to face affliction. You're going to face adversity. Persecution is coming. They had to get out of town. First Thessalonians 3, it says, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions for yourself know that we have been destined. He said, I told you before. And he said, so I left, and man, my heart's so heavy for you. Did you continue on? How did God use the adversity? Did you stay with the Lord? And what's interesting is two, three verses later, he says this, but now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of what? Your faith and love. So in the midst of the adversity, in the midst of the persecution, God is building their faith. God is building their love for Jesus and one another. God was doing this even though the attack was coming from the enemy. So don't quit. And I thought maybe the best way I could illustrate this is to take a couple moments today and, and, and just kind of share my story. I'm often asked, especially at pizza with the pastor, Steve, what's your vision, right? What's your vision? Going to be a mega church. What are, you, what are you trying to do here? And it's kind of a long story. And I got thinking, I don't know that I've ever put it all together. You all know bits and pieces, but let me maybe hang my whole story together so you understand the vision piece of it. So you got to start with, as I've shared with you many times, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my dad was in full-time ministry my whole life. My dad's a gifted evangelist, though he's a pastor. So, man, every church that he pastored grew. But it grew because people were coming to faith in Christ, right? That, it was just his heart. I grew up being seen and shown 
that evangelism is the lifeblood of a church. My dad used to say, and he's true, you find a church that doesn't seem people get saved. It's either dead or it's dying and doesn't know it. It's true. you got to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So I learned how to share my faith. I, I can remember, uh, I think I was about third, fourth grade. You know, my dad sat me down, showed me the Romans road, you know. But, you know, it's not my gifting, but it's something I do. I, I love to share my faith. So then I went to Bible college. At the end of Bible college, uh, God worked out some circumstances. I was able to come home to my home church, a large church, over 2,000. Actually became the youth pastor. 21 years of age, had like 175, 200 kids in our youth group. And of course, the heart was, I, I knew we needed to see people get saved. And so we would do all these things. But, but there was something that was going on. And, be, and this is the part I want you to be really careful. I'm not throwing stones at anything right now. I'm just telling you my story. But you know, good churches can get sidetracked by good things. And this church that I grew up in got sidetracked through a Christian school. And that became the focus. And so some, most of my kids were in the Christian school. And so as we're trying to talk about evangelism, we're trying to talk about teaching them how to share their faith. We're just seeing hardly anybody come to save faith in Christ because we're hardly seeing any unsaved kids. I battled with this. I wrestled with this for seven years. March 1988. I knew transition was coming because my dad was moving to Phoenix to a new church. And I knew that as my church got a new pastor, he wouldn't want the old pastor's son on staff, right? So change is coming. Had an opportunity to go to Florida, March of 1988, to take training, not only how to share my faith better, but better yet, how to train some others. It's called Evangelism Explosion. Maybe you've heard of it. I went down there that week and God began to put all the experiences of my life together in one cohesive vision. All right? So I'm not a, I'm not a gifted evangelist. I love to share my faith, but I, that's not my gifting. But my gifting is exhortation and my gifting is teaching and training. And I got this tool in which I could see that all these things that I believe, that a church has got to be about evangelism, that a church is about living on mission, that I was called as a pastor to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That, that what I could do is I could teach and I could train and I could model and I could exhort. And can you imagine what God could do in a church if every person was living on mission? If every person in a church was living for who's your one, right? You, you could not only change a church, you could change a community, you could change a city, you could change a country. And God began to hatch this burden. I had it, right? Man, I got to give them the tools. I got to equip. That's what I'm called to do. So I go home. This is part of the story you know, but probably never having been tied to my vision piece. I go home, 12 days later, my wife, who was eight months pregnant, goes into preterm labor with my son. He's bored. She dies. So the first time that I actually, from having been trained, share the gospel in this new method is standing over her casket at her funeral. Obviously, I'm in no shape to train anybody at that point. In fact, I, four months later, I end up out here in Phoenix, of all place, things, to actually 
beginning an evangelism ministry. I was in the midst of grief. I didn't really like sitting at home, so I took six people. I met with them on Sunday, and I did the classroom work. And then for 16 weeks, I took two of them out on Monday night. I took two of them out on Tuesday night. Of course, Wednesday you have church, right, back in the day? So Thursday night then, I took the other two out. And I'd love to tell you that, oh, man, this is my vision, right? And we're going to get people excited about this. We're going to see a boatload of people get saved. And we went out 16 weeks in a row for three nights a week. We didn't see a boatload of people get saved. In fact, we only saw one. And I'd love to tell you, oh, they came in, they got discipled and baptized and all this. It didn't happen. We tried, but they kind of got pulled in by a bit of a cult, honestly. But underneath the surface, God was doing something. So one of those six became my, my assistant. The other five and I took two more people, and we began to train people. And over the course of the next seven years, we trained over 1,000 people in that church how to share their faith, how to live on mission. Church grew from 550 to over 2,000. Then God brought Desert Springs into my life. First ministry we started here was Evangelism Explosion. We trained hundreds, if not thousands, of people here at Desert Springs. One of the problems we ran into is most of the people who came to our church didn't live by our church. So we go out and visit the people they they brought and got to see some of them get saved, but you know they didn't want to come to church where we were because we were too far away, and so it just wasn't making the impact. And about that time, you know, as we're slow growing and struggling with all the financial things, you know, that was back in the day when a boat boatload of these seeker-driven churches. And again, not throwing stones here, just trying to tell you my story. And their philosophy of ministry is you invite your unsaved friend, I will share the gospel from the pulpit, and they'll get saved, right? And they're blowing up. I mean, they're just blowing up. They're doing a good work. But that's not what God called me to. That wasn't my vision. And as I struggled with that, and I went before the Lord over and over, it was still, Steve... That's not what I called you to. You're going to make a greater impact. You keep trying to be. You do what I told you to do. And so through all of those moments, we, we, we kept doing that. And we kept doing that. And we kept doing that. In fact, you want to know why we moved? It was the whole idea that, you, you know, this is about people reaching people in their life. Everybody's got their oikos, their their. 8 to 15 people, 20 people in their life. And most of the people were driving to our church 10 miles. So, so we thought, well, let's sell it and move. And we, we got out here. And sure enough, we started seeing people now within families coming to faith in Christ. Because people were sharing the gospel. And now we're close. Four or five years ago when we started, we finally sold that other property. We started thinking, okay, God, where do we go? Well, the whole idea is, well, we now have people traveling 10 miles here. We don't want to move again. We want to be here. So let's go plant churches. You see, the vision isn't about even planting churches. It was never about building or location. It was about we want to equip people to reach the people in their life. We're talking about a campus expansion. Folks, you've got to understand, it has nothing to do with a vision piece other than it gives us the tools and the capacity to train more people to go out to live on mission, to share the gospel in their life. That's how we're going to transform this community. That's it. But man, it, it's been hard. 
There have been many times when it would have been easy to quit and folk in your vision, whatever it is, whether it's for, for this marriage and, and a spouse isn't coming along or for your kids and the kid isn't walking with Jesus or, or if it's for a ministry, here's the thing, don't quit. It's God's vision for you. Let him work in your life, yes. Let him adjust the plan, yes. But don't quit on the vision. God has put it in your heart. God's burdened you with it. It's his vision for you. And it's through that that he is going to draw you into closer relationship with himself. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. For 94 years, they'd started on this wall multiple times, and they'd every time quit in the face of adversity. They didn't quit this time. 52 days, they got it built. Some of those rough days, I'm sure many of you have seen this, maybe even have it up, but I love this picture. It has encouraged me in different moments of my life where quitting looked like a pretty good thing. But just don't ever give up. If it's God's vision, you've settled it. It's what he's called you to do. You can't quit. It's what you got to give your life for. Never, ever, ever give up on it. Never give up on your marriage. Don't give up on your kids. Don't give up on the people you're praying for, that they'll come to faith in Christ. Don't quit. Father, we love you. Thank you for Nehemiah. Lord, that he was, he just wouldn't quit. He wouldn't quit. In the midst of all kinds of adversity, Lord, I don't know the adversity that maybe some of my friends and brothers and sisters in Christ are facing today. But I know you know all about it. And I know, Lord, you'll use the adversity as they lean into you to work, to refine To make them more like Jesus. But Father, I pray that none of us would quit. Lord, I pray as a church that we would be a church that lives on mission. Every single one of us in our neighborhood, in our home, at our place of work, with our circle of friends. Lord, we believe the time is short. For those who maybe, Lord, haven't taken training. So, Lord, they'd love to share the gospel. They just don't know exactly how to do it. Lord, may they, in January, get in, on board with that. Lord, that they would get trained so that all of us could live on mission and impact this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, it's been great having you today. Hope you have a great week. Just don't quit, right? See you then.